Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 450. My what? gosh. 450, Sarah. 450. That's like a, that's like a, that's like a, you know, like a number. Like a, I mean, not like, I mean, it is a number. a number. Yes. I mean, yeah, way to state the obvious, Sarah. Um, no, but I mean like a, like a round number, like a cool number. It's a like, big number. Not palindrome cool, but like still it it's like a multiple of 50 that's cool it also indicates how very old we are and how very long we've been doing this because you can do the math on a weekly show the the benefit is that we started this podcast when we were 15 Uh, I was 12 actually yeah yeah okay yeah I'm I am a couple (laughs) years older than you uh yeah yeah that's that's how that math works with my current age that's definitely it well, I'm actually excited to tackle this topic because it came up for me this week. Um, I Someone handed me a meat stick and I was driving and I was like, does this one have paprika in it? Because I don't eat nightshades because it activates my immune system. And mm-hmm. um, my lovely husband read the ingredients for me because I was driving and he's like, no, actually it doesn't have paprika in it. And I took a bite and it had red pepper flakes in it. (laughs) It's like, I could immediately taste it. And I was like, really? Really? So he's going to have to listen to this show because he produces it and it will be a good reminder for him of what to look out for. Uh, I actually, that happened to me, not, it wasn't Matt who did it to me. It happened to me at my very first, um, ancestral health society conference. It was like the first, um, conference I went to in our community. Once I started sort of blogging and at that point I, I was actually already like nearly done writing the paleo approach. Um, but I, I was like full AIP elimination phase. Like it was, um, I had discovered super sensitivity to nightshades and I had this conversation with, um, a gentleman who was handing out samples of, again, it was a meat stick. And I was like, well, you know, does it have nightshades in it? And he said, uh, no. And I said, are you sure it doesn't have chili peppers or jalapeno or red pepper or paprika and he was like no it doesn't have any of those things and I was like okay I'll try it and I took one bite and the heat was so intense and I've never particularly enjoyed spicy food so uh it was (laughs) it was like already like no no this is not my thing and also that heat, as we'll talk about today, is caused by something called capsaicin, um, which is a uh, irritant, which is one of the reasons why nightshades, it's like a secondary reason for why nightshades are excluded on the autoimmune protocol. And uh, I, uh, I, I spat it out and he was like, oh, d- d- would chili flakes count? And I was like, oh my God. I, it caused me 
to have a flare that lasted like two months. Uh, the fact just that I spat it out because I was that sensitive to nightshades like early on. This was sort of like the first year of my AIP journey. So again, I was 15 when this happened. Um, and so it was like, for me, it was one of, it was one of the early experiences that made me like really understand how very minute quantities of what I would sort of put under the broad umbrella term of trigger foods can be super problematic for those of us with autoimmune disease and sort of other like inflammation driven chronic illnesses because we're we're starting from a physiological position where our immune systems are already on overdrive right they're already freaking out over you know really nothing um and so to add an immune stimulant to that equation like the immune system's already like activated and attacking our bodies and that little bit of extra push can drive us from manageable symptoms or resolving symptoms into flare. And it was one of the early experiences that really informed actually how I look at the research on things like herbs and spices in terms of understanding like why is it that such a small amount can have such a big impact. And the best analogy that I can make is think about a medicine, right? Think about taking an aspirin. Think about how, how small that little pill is and it's still full of fillers, right? The actual amount of active ingredient is way smaller. And then think about what that can do, right? Think about um, the blood thinning effects of a baby aspirin every day and why that's used for people who have had um, like major myocardial infarctions. So then translate that to, well, how much, how much of the spice are you putting in your food? It's more than the volume is more than probably what was in that little tiny pill. So then we can start to draw that connection as to, okay, yeah, there are some substances that have a strong enough biological effect that a very small amount can still be problematic. That's such a good analogy with the pills. Cause I do think that sometimes it's, it's like that. And I also want to clarify. So we're specifically talking about spices on the autoimmune protocol, or if you have um, some sort of autoimmune condition, um, why some of these might activate your system. Um, and I will also say that Sarah, that was years ago for you. Um, mm -hmm. And it has been years for me. And we both have since learned through the healing process, some of the things that we're going to talk about, you can bring back in um, and watch for symptoms and see how your body responds. And sometimes additional stresses can activate and you have to reconfigure like this whole mm -hmm. thing that we often talk about. But if you're here for the first time, just want to remind you of a lot of information on that. Sarah literally wrote the book on that. Um, and we'll <laughs> put links in the show notes to other references Um as well. But um, we did get a great listener question that we wanted to jump into. But I just kind of wanted to lay the groundwork that if you don't have an autoimmune condition, you like enjoy your hot stuff because it's in everything. <laughs> just live it up. You know, for me, I'm like, I grew up Hungarian, Italian, my grandmother put crushed red pepper flakes and paprika in everything. And it was quite a shock to like learn new flavors to still get a little spicy. I've become um, 
obsessed with ginger as a way to like get good um a, a little heat that doesn't irritate my system there are ways around it um and i think our listener question will kind of like take us on that journey so don't don't stop listening to the upfront cuz you're like oh my gosh you guys are going to take away my whatever I don't know, does does your body feel like it has additional inflammation that you might want to help it and seeing if some of these things being taken out reduces your joint pain or reduces your symptoms or whatever it is that you might be going through? That's up to you. We can't tell you, but we can tell you what the science says <laughs> in terms of the <laughs> philosophy on why some of those foods might be affecting some of your bodies or maybe your loved ones, right? Like you might have yeah. a loved one who has arthritis who might benefit from hearing some of this stuff. I, I mean, I generally think that the, the logic that goes into the autoimmune protocol, right? So how we compile that scientific information and then uh, sort of apply a level of reasoning to how we're going to take this information and um, allow it to inform our day-to-day choices, right? So obviously the autoimmune protocol, it's got autoimmune right in the name, right? It was, it was crafted um, and, and, you know, my, my research into it was really from the perspective of understanding how the immune system works and understanding how it intersects with nutrients, with, um, other food compounds, with lifestyle, with hormones, right. And, um, with the gut microbiome and the gut barrier in general, right. So really understanding how all of these different inputs, can impact what the immune system is doing and where it can drive inflammation versus help resolve inflammation. And so I think you're exactly right, Stacey, to call out that understanding how foods can be problematic for some people is like never irrelevant. Like even if you're somebody who is perfectly healthy, there's there's science here that can help to A, like troubleshoot a problem in the future, but also there's uh, like tinkering and refinement and optimization that can still happen as a result of this information, even if the context of the autoimmune protocol itself is not applicable to you. So um, get ready for some like cool, fun conversations about herbs and spices. And then what we'll also do is for our AIP listeners, you know, I, I realized when we got Jeff's question that we'd never actually really covered this on the podcast. We're going to kind of do like a deep dive into which herbs and spices are um, like awesome on the AIP, which ones kind of qualify as early reintroductions and why, and then which ones are best avoided and saved for a reintroduction once uh, a substantial amount of, of healing has taken place. So why don't I start by reading Jeff's question? Hello. It's, like, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good opener, don't you think, Stacy? Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, I am a chef of 20 years, and as most of us in the hospitality industry have experienced, things are not good. During my temporary retirement, I've decided to help out a family who has started an AIP diet. I haven't cooked specifically for a person who has said they are specifically AIP, but I have had plenty of experience with similar dietary needs. It will no doubt be a challenge, but it would be a fantastic learning experience and chance to change a person's experience while on their path to recovery. 
in my journey, I'm looking for ways to infuse the flavors which I like to use in ways that will be in line with the protocol. My inquiry has to do mainly with the flavor infusion. Take, for example, a brine for pork. I use products like whole black, whole black peppercorn, whole coriander seed, mustard seed, etc., to add layers of flavor to the brine. Is the main issue with these spices the pieces of the seeds? Are the extracted oils also off limits? My main concern is around spices. I would venture to believe that nightshade oils are the problem. Example, dried chilies, capsicum, etc. Thanks, Jeff. I love that Jeff is thinking about this from like a chemistry perspective, both like in the body, in the seed, in the cooking, because... Mm -hmm. Oh, I just touched my mic. Um, <laughs> I hope that was okay. Um, be I'm a hand talker. You know it. Uh, because we have, we have found that, for example, some people can eat um, raw tomatoes but not cooked or like different things like that as they start to bring back into the elimination cycle. So um, if someone is currently actively fully AIP, the answer is going to be entirely different than if someone is transitioning and what that looks like and really listening to their bodies. And what what ultimately will be the answer is it's very bio-individual and we can't give you the exact answer or science on what affects you and why, uh, but we can talk about how these things in general um, are chosen as to as yeah. why they're in this protocol and then I think that will inform some of the answers for Jeff hello Jeff so I think it helps to kind of take a step back from Jeff's really specific question about like brines and broths and uh, infused oils and seed oils and kind of just talk about herbs and spices sort of in general and and how the calculus goes in terms of whether or not they're included on the autoimmune protocol. So in the autoimmune protocol, what we're trying to do is, um, is with, with diet anyways, is sort of two things simultaneously. One is like flood the body with nutrients that are really important for every biological system. So the idea is that that diet is a nutrivore diet. It's nutrient sufficient. We are focused on the most nutrient dense foods in the food supply, um, and we're looking at not just essential nutrients like vitamins and minerals, but also non-essential nutrients like fiber and phytonutrients and non-essential vitamin-like compounds like CoQ10, right? Like it's really this broad um, inclusion of essential and non-essential nutrients because we have so much science to show that even when a nutrient is considered non-essential, what that means is that you won't die if you don't consume it. Um, but that's different than saying whether or not you'll be healthy if you don't consume it. And what we know about these things that we call nutrients is like in general, the more the better, right? There's a few exceptions to that where we talk about U-shaped curves in biology, right? So if I consumed all the vitamin A and no vitamin D or vitamin K, I could you know, have vitamin A toxicity. That's almost always seen in the context of supplements and not whole foods, because whole foods tend to package vitamin A with vitamin D and vitamin K. Um, you know, the only exceptions being like a polar bear liver. Some There's a few livers from animals that most oh, of us you know, what will I never do, get to eat. What I get every Tuesday. Yeah, that's yeah. Your, your Tuesday dinner, that's polar bear Tuesday. liver. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a few exceptions like that where there are food sources that have like toxic levels of vitamin A, but overall, um, you know, we're talking about 
uh, when we talk about um, nutrient toxicity, these are almost always only seen in the context of high dose supplementation. So um, I do kind of want to like <laughs> lay that out and not, we, you know, we talked about vitamin A toxicity in our um, fish oil show, I believe. So we can definitely track that down and put a, a link in the show notes. Um, but in general, right, we're looking at nutrients. And then the other thing we're trying to do is remove inflammatory compounds from the diet. So that can be something as simple as removing a high intake of simple sugars um, or simple carbohydrates that are broken down into sugars really quickly. But this is also where gluten comes into play. Um, this is where uh, we're going to talk about glycoalkaloids in nightshade vegetables come into play. And so we're also trying to to remove any, it's basically like the, the most likely culprits, right? The most likely trigger foods. And then the AIP is a phased approach where the first phase is elimination, where we basically work on flooding the body with nutrients, removing all the most likely potential trigger foods, focusing on lifestyle at the same time. And then we methodically add the eliminated foods back in and test our own individual tolerance to those foods. So that's typically called the reintroduction phase. And then once you have identified your own trigger foods, you've uh, reintroduced a bunch of foods and you've kind of got like got things down, then we would call that the maintenance phase. Maintenance phase is not necessarily static because as Stacy alluded to earlier, this is a fairly dynamic system and things like not getting enough sleep or being particularly stressed can influence exactly how the body is reacting to an inflammatory compound in foods. Um, but what we call the maintenance phase is where we've really done that um, self-experimentation and self-exploration to understand how our own bodies are interacting with diet and lifestyle. So how do we apply that to herbs and spices? So it helps to define exactly what the difference is between an herb and a spice. An herb is uh, the fragrant leaf of a plant. Sometimes flowers fall under herbs. Sometimes if, you're, if you eat them, um, like they're mostly petal, you would call that an herb. If it's more like a dried bud, something that you might grind, you would call that a spice. Um, so flowers can kind of fall under both, right? You can think of lavender, right, is an herb. Cloves are a spice, right? Even though they're basically both flowers. Um, but what is really special about herbs and why they're so actually beneficial on the autoimmune protocol is these are some of our most concentrated sources of phytonutrients. Um, so phytonutrients is a broad class of nutrients, right? It literally means like plant nutrient or uh, it's that term is used interchangeably with phytochemical, plant chemical. Um, but what these tend to have is uh, broad sort of antioxidant properties, they almost always have anti-inflammatory properties. And then there's usually this collection of other health-promoting properties, really commonly anti-cancer, um, heart protective, liver protective, lung protective, uh, neuroprotective. Um, you see some that are beneficial for, for kidney function, right? So we can sort of have this collection of other properties that are health beneficial. So polyphenols are the biggest class of phytonutrients. Um, but there's other phytonutrients as, as well, like glucosinolates, which we find in cruciferous vegetables fall under this, uh, carotenoids, the things that make uh, orange vegetables orange, um, are, are a class of phytonutrients. So these are generally incredibly beneficial. And what's great about herbs is that they are, that these phytonutrients are what give them their really unique 
flavors. Um, and because they're not reproductive plant parts, we tend to not see the same type of potential inflammation triggering compounds that we might see in, for example, seeds. So spices are basically everything that's not an herb. Um, so they are um, often from reproductive plant parts, seeds, berries, fruit. Um, they can also include though some other uh, non-reproductive plant parts, right? Think cinnamon bark, right? So that's from the bark. Think turmeric root or ginger root, that's from a, a tuber. Um, think about uh, saffron styles or um, Think about mace arils, that's the arils from the nutmeg plant. So there are certainly some spices that come from other parts of the plant. Um, what we think of as spices uh, is something that you um, might grind, whereas you, you generally don't, you might dry an herb, right? You might put dried oregano in a recipe, um, but you're generally not going to grind it. Whereas a spice is typically going to be hard um, and you're most likely going to grind it to put it in your, um, whatever your recipe is, or if you put in, you know, like a whole cinnamon stick to flavor something, you're going to eat around the cinnamon stick at the other end. That's kind of sort of the, the culinary differentiation slash botanical differentiation between what's an herb and what's a spice. So with spices, we kind of have these different categories. So in general, uh, we eliminate spices on the autoimmune protocol if they're derived from seeds, berries, fruit, or if they're any, any part of a plant that is a member of the nightshade family. So we can, we can kind of do a, like, I want to do kind of like a broad 20,000 foot overview about why, because um, if we really got into the super, super nuanced details here, we'd be here for the next three hours. Um, but generally with seeds, the, the biggest reason why they're eliminated on the autoimmune protocol is because they have a unusually high food allergy and intolerance rate. Um, so they can have some anti-nutrients that can be problematic, but the levels tend to be relatively low compared to something like grains. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, we've got this collection of studies now that have looked in different autoimmune diseases or different um, gastrointestinal, like inf um, not just inflammatory bowel disease, but also like irritable bowel syndrome and looked at the frequency of food allergy, which is an IgE-mediated uh, response, or food intolerance, which is typically IgG-mediated, but there's also studies that look at IgA antibodies as well. And they just look at like how many of these people are showing symptoms. And then there's some really cool studies where they actually, especially with like irritable bowel syndrome, where they have people then uh, stop eating all of the foods that they tested positive for, and they can see fairly commonly resolution of symptoms, not 100% because there's often other things that can be going on there. Um, but that's actually like a really cool thing to look at is um, just how how common these intolerances are. And nuts and seeds um, tend to be some of the highest rate food intolerances. This is also, by the way, why nuts and seeds are early reintroductions on the autoimmune protocol and why there's an argument to be made that you could do food intolerance testing and um, never necessarily eliminate anything that you come back 
negative for. Um, just remember that there's ways that we can negatively react to foods that we do not have the capacity to test for. And so it's not necessarily 100% guaranteed that that's not a trigger food for you just because you did a test and it came back negative. And actually most of the foods that we eliminate on the AIP, we eliminate for reasons that are not related to food allergy or intolerance. So being negative on that test is not predictive of whether or not that food is going to be a trigger food. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I've lived it. So <laughs> I think, I think that's totally makes sense. I think, you know, my own personal experience has been a variety of these things influencing me at different ways at different times. Um, and that's what makes it really difficult. I know we've previously also talked about the ability to test for allergies. I want to clarify, and Sarah, you can talk a little bit about this, but these might not necessarily be something that's going to show up on like an allergy test, for example. I think a lot of people are like, well, it didn't show up on an allergy test. Therefore, it's, it's fine for me. And um, how something, as you said, you know, if it's good for you versus if it's um, causing inflammation in your body versus if it's an allergic reaction are three very different things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so what was actually really important to emphasize is with spices, there certainly have been some studies that have included a small handful of spices in their um, uh, food intolerance testing. And those actually, um, spices like black pepper, nutmeg, cinnamon, um, they actually are really high frequency food intolerances. Um, they've actually came up when I did food intolerance testing a long time ago, uh, not cinnamon, but nutmeg and, and black pepper did. And it was really eye-opening for me to be like, those are, I, I've never really super loved pepper, but nutmeg, nutmeg and I, we go way back, like to when I was like 15 or something. I'm joking again. Um, but um, it's, uh, we don't have necessarily an estimate on how frequent food intolerance rates are to like the full collection of spices. We just know from the studies that have been done and the few spices that have been looked at and the other seeds like sesame seeds, sunflower seeds and nuts in general, um, that they, they have this really high intolerance rate. And the reason for this is like compared to why would that be so much higher than the leaf of a plant, for example, it has to do with the proteins that are unique to seeds. Um, so seeds as the reproductive plant part have some proteins in them that help to drive, you know, the growth of the plant that you're not going to find in the leaf um, in those types of quantities. And, um, and it's a protein that we are reacting to. So when we make an antibody against a food, we're making an antibody that binds to a protein in that food. And I, I want to make sure that we're clear on that because this is going to become relevant later. Um, so uh, that's not necessarily the only problematic compound, again, as Stacey just said, in that food. But if it's a food allergy or a food intolerance, it is specifically to a protein. Vegetables of the nightshade family are kind of a whole different thing, and nightshade spices fall under this too. Nightshades and every part of the nightshade plant, including, I mean, the leaves of most nightshades are toxic, um, are really high in a type of saponin called glycoalkaloid. Um, there's many different types of glyco glycoalkaloids, and this uh, chemical class is known to 
cause leaky gut. It increases gut permeability. And it also dramatically drives inflammation and adaptive immune responses. So it acts as what's called an adjuvant, um, which our listeners may recall our conversations about adjuvants in our recent COVID-19 podcast series um, about the vaccines, because an adjuvant is added to a vaccine to help drive the immune response. Um, That's how they that's like a necessary component of traditional vaccines. Um, generally not something that um, is awesome in food. Um, and certainly, you know, this is almost certainly why in the context of somebody with an immune system that's already overactivated, um, consuming these types of chemicals can drive symptoms because you're, you're basically... Um, you're basically poking a, a lion that's already angry, right? You're like, oh, you're already, you're already, you're already real mad. Um, here, have a little, have a little extra stimulation. I'm poke, poke, poke. Like that doesn't generally, that doesn't end well. Um, and uh, in this analogy, the not end well is autoimmune flare. Yeah, I'm. I would agree that that is a badness, as as has yeah. been previously referred. Shall not poke. Shall not poke angry lions, or I would say any <laughs> any kind of lion. Have you have you seen the meme that's like an angry looking wolf, and it says um, autoimmune disease because the only thing strong enough to kick my booty is me. Little different words, but do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that is, that is, that is a good uh, description of autoimmune disease, isn't it? Um, so let's talk about herbs and spices in practice. Um, what are a go on the autoimmune protocol? Um, what we would eliminate initially, uh, in the absence of food sensitivity testing, um, but that would be like really great candidates for early reintroductions. And then what are nightshades, um, which are the the lion poking stick spices um, that we maybe want to avoid. So again, like herbs are generally anything that comes from the leaf of a plant. I think it's really worth mentioning here, though, um, that extracts of some herbs are not an automatic pass on the autoimmune protocol. We did an entire podcast episode on essential oils in episode 272. But um, the the take-home message there is when you do an extract, you're not necessarily getting everything from a plant. So you might be concentrating certain types of compounds and then um, taking something that might have a more balanced impact on immune function, for example, or gut health, for example, and skewing it so that it's no longer balanced. And of course, gut imbalances, hormone imbalances, immune system imbalances are like part of what's driving not just autoimmune disease, but like chronic illness in general. So um, what we're talking about here when we talk about safe spices and safe herbs, we're talking about the full, like the whole leaf um, or, you know, with cinnamon, right? The whole piece of bark. We're not talking about extracts. So uh, I, Stacey, I'm going to start reading some fun, some fun herbs. And I would like you to chime in about whether or not you are familiar with them and or your favorite way to consume them or your favorite recipe and or whether or not you like them. Okay. I can play this Mm -hmm. game. 
yeah, I think this is a fun, this is gonna be fun. All right, uh, Lebenbaum. So it's not something we use regularly, but I do know what it is. I just prefer to put fresh lemon, like squeeze lemon juice and zest and everything. My grandparents used to grow lemon balm on the side of their house. Like the whole side was lemon balm. And I used to, as a kid, like just like bend over and take a bite of the plant. Uh, sweet basil. <laughs> did you put that in just to tell that story? Um, um, yes. Yes, I did. Sweet basil. So I love all kinds of basil, including mm-hmm. Thai basil, which I don't think oh, is yeah. listed separately here. So I just want to point that out, that there are multiple kinds of Holy basil. Holy basil. Yes. Um we usually grow sweet basil and Thai basil in the spring and summer because it's one of our favorites. I actually this winter bought myself grow lights so that I could have basil, a basil plant in the house all winter. And it is still alive. And um, and I'm very proud of myself. Um, I'm super impressed. Uh, so it's not everything made it through this winter. <laughs> just let's, let's be clear. Um, but I have a basil plant that I'm now going to move to outside because um, it'll be it'll be so much happier out there. Uh, bay leaves. Oh, we call them lucky leaves in my house. It's funny. We have a different way that we review them here. Um, yes, we use bay leaves all the time. Um, super simple way to add flavor. You just need to make sure that you don't eat it, that you remove it when serving. Um, and the way that we handle that in our house is if you get the bay leaf, um, it's early bedtime for you. We call it EBT. It's like if you get <laughs> if you get the bay leaf, then it's your early. It's like a sign that you're supposed uh-huh. to go to bed early. <laughs> so in our house, if you get the bay leaf, you're the lucky one. Like it's that's why we call them and, lucky leaves. I mean, I think it's and one actually, and the same. You know, I always put four, like oh, or a multiple of four into whatever I'm cooking. Now I have a giant um, bay tree like right outside my my front door like I don't even have to leave my house to pick leaves off of it um it's right I can just reach out the front door and grab and grab fresh bay leaves um it was a it was one of the first things I planted when we moved into our house and it's like 20 feet tall right now which is pretty cool um very cool we just use dried ones we're not fancy like that uh it was um the plant was like maybe six inches tall when I planted it I did not no, my grandparents, again, <laughs> talking about their garden, they had a bay tree that was maybe like five feet tall. I didn't know that they grew this big. Um, and what's been really fun is twice since we've moved here, it we've had a really hard freeze in the winter and it has completely died back and then it sends up runners. So it's like completely regrown itself twice since we first moved here, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I always have to put in an equal number. And then when I'm serving, I have to make sure everyone gets one because otherwise somebody's like, I didn't get a lucky leaf. It's a oh, thing. Now you need to change it to early bedtime and then people won't want it in their bowl, you know? Well, I, 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 I still want it. I'll do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For me, anytime I get the bay leaf, I'm like, yes, I am yeah. lucky. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, chamomile. Other than tea, it's not something we use. Um, I'm not sure that I've ever, I guess I've had like chamomile infused creams in like the way olden days. But yeah, like chamomile tea, normal bedtime tea. Uh, Other than that. Like you can put it, I know you can put it in desserts and stuff too. Like you could, you know, concentrate a liquid. You could, uh, you know, different things like that. But I think for us, it's usually just tea. It used to grow wild where I grew up, and we used to pick it. Um, 
I don't think it grows wild where I live now. Uh, Sherville. Oh, I love Sherville. So I know of Sherville, but it's not something we use, no. It's, um, to me, it's like uh, a salad green. Like you would just put it, you would just put it in a salad. I used to grow it on my balcony when I was in grad school in a little, in a pot. And I would just add it to Cole, salads. And then it's like fancy salad. Cole really loves it. Like when we find it at the farmer's market, but, and he, yeah, like that would eat it in salads. But um, he learned about it in farm camp. Um, oh, that's epic. Yeah. So we would have literally no idea about it or have even tried it if he hadn't gone to farm camp when he was much younger. Um. Oh, I want to go to farm camp. Uh, I'm going to put that on my post-pandemic bucket list. Um, then you can learn fun. about good bugs and bad bugs and go around your garden every morning and remove the bad bugs and feed them to the chickens. <laughs> it was it was quite a like um, situation they had where they called it farm camp, but really it was like we paid but to really, be their farm labor. Okay, maybe, okay, I take it off my bucket list. I'm just going to um, go through with my plan of two years ago that I still haven't done of planting a vegetable garden. <laughs> um, chives. I mean, I feel I mean, like that's... all the time. Fresh chives, dried chives. Uh, frankly, my kids go around the yard and they cut them where they can find them. Um, you know, like the grass yeah. onions or whatever. But um, no, I love green onions, chives, the whole family. Leeks, I, it's a flavor mm-hmm. I really like. Uh, I I wholeheartedly agree. We have like a wild onion that, that grows this time of year in our garden too that we also feel like, oh, I don't have any chives. Oh, I'll just go out and pick some of this wild onion. It works. Um, okay. So are you a cilantro tastes like soap person or a, I love cilantro and could not envision my life without it person. Cause I feel like it's, there's only those two kinds of people. There's not, I am the gray area in between. I, no, some, this doesn't cilantro you're like a magic is, uniform. No. And you know what? I like being this person. I like teaching people that you don't have to be polarized in your belief system whatever it might be referring to (laughs) you can just say like you know what cilantro isn't soap but it's also not like the best thing in the world and if you don't like it you're not a bad person and if you do love it you're not a bad person it just it exists for me like if I have it I will absolutely dress especially um if we're making um food that is enhanced with that flavor right like if we're if we're making like a taco salad or something like that if it's around great but it's not it's not a flavor that's like I'm obsessed with and it's not soapy nobody in our family has that um that soapy thing I think it's a gene right it is a gene yeah um we are a family of um every meal is better with cilantro <laughs> like it, it is <laughs> you're such an American you don't, you don't say cilantro anymore um I am an American now. <laughs> it's it's true. I've been an American for a year and a half. Every so. time you say it, I'm a little disappointed. Um, don't worry. When I'm not on, uh, not, not being recorded, I still say cilantro. So there's there's still there's still some Canadianisms that come out. I'm just I'm just super aware now. <laughs> um, okay, cinnamon. I mean, check check. If I check. if I had to choose between chocolate like and any other thing I choose vanilla and cinnamon over chocolate like that's how much I love cinnamon I love cinnamon yes I think it um I I definitely feel better too I think it's the anti-inflammatory nature of it um is part of what my body craves I think so yeah so one of my brothers is allergic to cinnamon like like anaphylactic 
allergy no, to cinnamon. It has been since I was really little. Him. So my mom always replaced cinnamon and recipes with nutmeg, allspice, and um, sometimes like depending on the recipe, like ginger or cardamom. And so it's funny because funny. I like Your feel like pumpkin pie recipe is so uh-huh. good. It's that's totally where that comes from because it's my mom's spice mix from having to change it because my brother couldn't have cinnamon. So, um, so I feel like it's a, it's a spice that I've like rediscovered as an adult. Cause we basically, you know, didn't have it growing up because Donnie was allergic. So, um, so I, I, I enjoy cinnamon, but if you offered me cinnamon or chocolate, come on, chocolate. No, Super. cinnamon for me. Yeah. Interesting. Gosh, Donnie, way to ruin it for everybody. I know. He really did. Um, all right. Cloves. I love yeah, cloves. Yeah, we use cloves. Um, not just at the holidays either. Like cloves can be a really great addition to um gosh, I think Matt puts them in his like barbecue spice rub. You know, you mm-hmm. can um different kinds of things like that. Yeah. I really and like brines. It. In um, like a beef stock, like that little bit, I'll throw Mm -hmm. a couple of whole Mm -hmm. cloves in, like, and just infuse that flavor. So cloves are one of the the, um, safe spices on the AIP that are often, like, people are surprised to learn about because it feels like it should be a seed, but it's actually a flower bud. So that's that's why it's in this list. Like, I feel like, like, I just want to remind people, we're not just now talking about our fun experience with herbs and spices. These are all the AIP safe ones. So I just kind of want to remind, remind people, yes, cloves are on the safe list. That's, that is um, often one that kind of surprises people. Uh, all right. Dill weed. Is that just dill? Is that? It is dill. It's, dill, okay. it's leaf dill as opposed to the seeds of dill, ah, right? Yeah. Cause you can buy dill seed or you can buy dill, like the little, it's kind of like, so, so dill is actually. It's in what's the, floating in your pickle water. Yes. So it's actually in the parsley family. Um, so it has these like those feathery leaves, yep. um, parsley, all in uh, carrots, celery. Yeah. Um, I also enjoy dill. Uh, okay. Garlic and ginger. Obviously. Yeah. Super. Give me all uh, of it. Yep. Do you enjoy horseradish? I do. We make our own horseradish sauce for mm-hmm. when I eat beef because yeah. it used to be it goes with beef well I used to be like an a1 person and obviously for various reasons that's not something I'm, <laughs> I'm consuming and not the least of which uh tomatoes is a nightshade and that is in a1 and so you know years and years ago I came up with okay what else am I going to use and so we make our own horseradish sauce um and I also do you really buy like... powdered horseradish or do you grate fresh horseradish so we actually have like a tube of like or a jar like a glass jar of horseradish it's Uh, it's not often easily found in like an actual um root form but I feel like it's very seasonal yeah but when we do find it I do get it and it stays good for a really long time in the fridge like ginger you know you can just um trim off portions of it Mm -hmm. that you need or whatever um and I don't know how much people know about this but fun fact a lot of the dyed green um, wasabi, I'm using quotation marks, that you get with your sushi is actually horseradish because wasabi root is very expensive and horseradish is easier. And so they like fake wasabi with horseradish or at least mix it in a lot of Where the time. Where does the green come from? Food dye. Ick. And you I'm... would never know because you just get like a lump of it with your sushi. Yeah, you, you just know? get like a 
green lump. Yeah. So interesting. Um, another, because you mentioned ginger as a way of sort of mimicking heat with AIP safe spices. Horseradish is another way. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Uh, lavender. No. I feel like I've discovered lavender the no. last few years. No, it's a hard pass for me. I don't like eating. Really? No. Mm-mm. And rose either. Like, no, th- I don't want to eat your flower. No, that's how I feel. <laughs> I love, um, I make this like lavender, um, sort of scented like honey sauce, um, for fresh fruit that, um, is super, super, I love it so much. Um, cause it's got the sweet of the honey and like the very floral of the lavender. All right. So agree to disagree on that one. Uh, mace. It is something that goes into other things like in blends. I don't even know that I would be able to identify it separately, but yes, we, we cook with it, so but it's not it's, like Maine or anything. It's from the same plant as nutmeg. So it's the nutmeg is the actual nut and then mace is the what's called an arrel. It's like the fleshy coating over the nut. Um, and we always had mace in the cupboard as a kid. Like, I feel like it's a spice that's much harder to find in America than it was in Canada. Um, it's a really classic sausage seasoning, um, which just fun fact. Um, so for me, it was a really easy switch from nutmeg to mace. Um, and that's, that's like another sort of like that sort of uh, sweet spice, um, there's another, there's another good one to, to put on the list. Um, when a recipe call, calls for nutmeg, you can just replace it with ground mace. Uh, marjoram. Does marjoram have a flavor? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if it has a flavor. It might just be green. <laughs> probably fresh marjoram has a flavor and probably dried marjoram is just green. This, this is my suspicion. Clearly it's Listeners, not either one of our top, a top lists. Yeah. <laughs> no. All right, uh, onion powder. Okay, that's in like an obs. Um, oregano. All the time. Yep. I love oregano. I love oregano. Uh, parsley. Yep, all the time. I feel like I feel like parsley. I did not like parsley as a kid, but I do really like parsley now. I, don't I mean, know as as someone who grew up with an Italian grandmother, like parsley is in everything whether it's fresh or dried or whatever you know what I mean it just one of her base flavors so maybe maybe that's the thing because I'm a parsley person my love for cilantro is kind of meh and you feel meh about parsley I would take cilantro over parsley in a heart second (laughs) see and to me I'm like well what am I eating it depends you know like one is appropriate on some things and not others I mean, I can think of one thing that I'd rather have parsley in, and that would be like canned fish. Of all the things, that's the okay. All that's right. the one thing that I would rather have parsley than cilantro. This, and listeners, if you didn't already know, Sarah and I have different palates. Um, <laughs> one of us likes kidneys and uh, raw lettuce, yep. and the other and likes good lettuce. flavors. So, oh, <laughs> <ouch>. burn. <laughs> Oh, all right. Uh, uh, peppermint or all the mints. Spearmint also falls under this. Yeah. Minty mints. Oh, I love of course. Mint. Of course. I just feel like it's very overpowering. So you can't put that with a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, it, I is, make, it is what it is. I make this um, uh, Thai flavored mints that is flavored with garlic, uh, lime juice, 
uh, fish sauce, cilantro, and mint. And it is like one of my family's favorites. Like they were like, oh, lettuce wraps. Like we usually have it as a lettuce wrap with some rice on the side. Oh, yeah. So good. Yeah. So good. We, we love um, like uh, Vietnamese wraps are kind of like that, right? Like they use yeah. mint that way. Yes. Love it. Uh, rosemary. We have a giant have rosemary a, bush. Mm-hmm. I have a I have a rosemary bush that is also planning world domination. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely expanding in a way that is not appropriate for a rosemary bush. Um, saffron. I that's like a fancy one. I love saffron. Um, if it wasn't so expensive, wait, I would put wait, it you in like everything. That, you like saffron and not lavender. I feel like these are in the same. No, Mm-mm. nope, they're not. Nope, I mean, I guess they're different flowers because saffrons are from a crocus. Right, I, uh, I also, I want to point out that there are some of these, we're going to go through what to avoid next. And what I will point out about saffron is that it can really deceive the eye because of the color. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you're, if you're working towards these eliminations, sometimes you just feel deprived. And what you might need to do is make something that looks like something you want like that's what the basis of a fomato sauce oh, is right saffron could totally do that with that orange that's what i'm like, saying is that color. like yeah. saffron can can give tarragon you. can do that too like just just a little bit of tarragon can or not tarragon turmeric yes the other t word yeah. yeah so let's say you were you know you know wanting like I'm thinking about Spanish rice, but if you're on AIP, you're probably avoiding rice, but let's just say you're avoiding these spices. Um, You could put saffron in the rice to mimic that same kind of Mm -hmm. color that you would get from adding tomatoes. And then you could put cucumbers instead of tomatoes in the rice. And it's not going to be the same, but I think that figuring out those kinds of replacements are very important. And so for me, ginger, horseradish, um, saffron. Some of these things were kind of revelations to me. Learning to love some of these things that we're talking about. Um, oregano and rosemary in my like fomato type things rather than leaning so heavily on crushed red peppers, for example. Um, that kind of stuff is really important. I feel like oregano um, and basil too mm. are like, they're the secret to an Italian flavor without tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, um, surprisingly you don't have it on here. Maybe you're going to tell me it's a seed, but, um, anise is another that we really like. Oh yeah. Sorry. Seed. So for me, like I said, it's been so long. Like I've, I've been able to integrate that without issues, but I think that's. Tarragon has a similar flavor. So if you're looking for that kind of licorice flavor and fennel seed and, um, anise are, um, definitely seeds. So they're definitely in the early reintroduction category. Tarragon is a really great substitute. Um, so it's like, you know, uh, this well, stuff, um, I enjoy <laughs> cooking. So, uh, this is, this is, I, I actually wrote my entire PhD thesis, um, in my apartment at home with like the cooking channel on in the background. So I feel like it just all got absorbed while I was like in brain activity mode. Um, let me see. Sage. I actually have really grown to like sage. I'm allergic. Like I have seasonal allergies to sage brush, but like the culinary sage herb, uh, we get along quite well. Interesting. One bit, not the other. I love sage. Um, and 
I love the way it looks. <laughs> so it's pretty. Maybe, I like maybe it. Maybe I need um, to grow when some. It's crisped, crisped. Up. Yes. Like yes. I, I just my sage died last winter, and it was very sad because I've had the same sage um, mini plant in a pot for about five or six years, and I, I just got a, a new little one instacarted to me yesterday. So I'm very excited to plant. Can I do it the next afternoon. one? Yes, it's my favorite. It's your favorite. It's, I mean, it's everyone's favorite. Let's be real. Oh my gosh. Salt. Please put salt on your food. Not just because it's delicious and tasty, but because it is an essential mineral. And so Mm -hmm. I highly recommend, especially if you're removing so many other spices, so many other spices that you invest in quality salt, whether um, like we have so many different salts here. We have sea salt, we have pink salt, we have kosher salt, we have flavor infused salts. Um, Like there's a local Italian store here that imports lemon salt and rosemary salt. And they're like, I'm obsessed with truffle salt. Like get, do yourself a favor and get some delicious, tasty salt and you will not miss so many of the things that you'll need to avoid for that temporary, hopefully, amount of time that you need to remove them because you will just be like living it up with your delicious salt. Oh, yeah. Uh, and fun fact, like a um, unrefined sea salt, like a cell gris or a Celtic sea salt or Himalayan pink salt can have like 80 to 90 different trace minerals. So it's not just sodium and chloride, but you can get this huge variety, kind of similar to eating sea vegetables in these trace minerals that are really, really important. So, um, and they can displace up to about 24% of the sodium. So unrefined sea salt is lower sodium. I was going to say, and your body processes that completely differently than like iodized salt, table salt, you know? So I know people who carry around like little containers of real Uh, salt in their purse or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So I do as well. um, Um, I, I bring it traveling when I'm Traveling, yes, I, when I, I travel, bring. I do. Yeah. Okay. Moving um, on. Okay, moving on. Savory. This is one of my favorite herbs. I love I'm savory. I'm not familiar with this. Um, so this is another one that I've discovered is really hard to find here. There's summer savory and winter savory. They're both from us. That's a very similar, same genus of plant. And they're kind of, I would say, like in the thyme, rosemary kind of family. But for me, like po- roast potatoes. Okay. Potatoes are not AIP, but we can eat them now. Um, Roast potatoes are not the same. And like turkey, that is like the only herb that is okay to flavor turkey with from my like, my, that's what we grew up with. Like my mom had this giant bag of savory that was like kept in the freezer. So it would maintain all of its flavor. Um, If you're not familiar with savory, it is, uh, it is just a lovely, lovely flavor. I highly recommend, highly recommend it. Like, especially it's, it's, it's in that very, um, uh, ubiquitous again, sort of like thyme rosemary. It's not the same as thyme or rosemary, but I would, I would classify it in that same, that same grouping. I will have to look for it. I've never even seen it, but that's because probably I wasn't looking for it. So we discussed spearmint already. We mentioned tarragon, um, I Let's just go wanna, straight like, to time. Yeah, I want to reiterate tarragon's amazing. Okay. Um, so, it okay. is delicious. Thyme is one of those ones where there's a lot of different varieties, and I like mm-hmm. some more than others. There's um, lemon thyme is my favorite, and it's not like... Yeah, you, yeah. I yeah. prefer an English thyme over lemon thyme, definitely. See, we have very different palettes. And this lemon thyme is not like... like 
thyme that's been picked and mixed with lemon. It's like its own plant. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a it's a specifically a species of thyme that has a little kind of lemon esque additional flavor to it. But same as like lime basil or lemon basil kind of also have that little extra yeah citrusy note on top of it. Yeah. yeah. You actually already mentioned turmeric too. Yes. I will say this is another one that um, a lot of people experience anti-inflammatory benefits from. Mm -hmm. And so if you can add this, it will add that orange color. But um, like cinnamon, my body responds really well to turmeric. If you can add that in, these are the kinds of things that we're saying are nutrivore based. I mean, all of these have great benefits, but in particular, my body loves cinnamon and turmeric. Um, mine, I mean, I would say mine too. Um, I definitely notice when I have turmeric, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's actually got some great like anti-inflammatory and sort of, um, analgesic properties too. So it can be really good for pain management. Um, okay. Here is the last one on our, on our safe list. And the that most controversial. That is very confusing for people. Yeah. <laughs> so it's vanilla bean. And the, the reason for this is it's a little bit of a different calculus so vanilla bean first of all it's not a legume um so it's it's doesn't get (laughs) avoided that way um and the seeds are actually so small it falls under the same logic that like berries would so when you are consuming a berry those seeds are coated and they don't get digested so we're not actually digesting um any of the potential like proteins that would be in that seed either are not getting exposed to our immune system. Um, and so they instead travel through our digestive tract intact. In In the olden days, that would mean that that berry was planted in very fertile soil. Um, and so vanilla bean actually falls under that, that same uh, logic for like these seeds are crazy tiny, they're traveling through us intact. Um, and actually, like if you get a vanilla powder, it is the ground pod um, in addition to the seed and the pod also has uh, that lovely flavor, but also lots of additional nutrients. The difference is with vanilla extracts is they're not all gluten-free. So often grain alcohol is used. And so definitely you want to read the label. There are definitely some brands um, that are using uh, gluten-free non-grain-based alcohol for um for basically it helps to maintain the flavor and makes it help it make a a stable at room temperature elixir is that what you would call vanilla um mm. so it's flavor it's enhancer. definitely yeah so my my preference is to use vanilla powder um so the ground it's basically you take the whole thing and you grind it up um but uh you know sometimes that just doesn't work in a recipe and a little vanilla extract is is good too. So you just, it's definitely a read the label if you're getting an extract. Shout out to my friend Gail who makes her own vanilla at the holidays and delivered it to my doorstep. Like that's the friend you want in your life, you know? Um, Gail could be my friend. <laughs> just let her know if she needs another friend, I'm available. Um, that sounds, she sounds like a great friend. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let's go through what to avoid a little bit faster. Um, and we'll just, I'll just kind of like list these. Um, so um, let's categorize them though. So these early reintroduction ones that are berries and fruit, right? When you're talking about a spice um, there that comes from a berry or fruit, when you grind it up, you're still grinding up the seed. And so um, this, it just, you know, you're basically 
not, you know, compared to something like vanilla, where you are not exposing your immune system to the proteins inside the seed, you are when you consume these things. So this includes allspice, um, anisee, also called star anisee, caraway, or star cardamom, anise for Americans. Anise. Mm-hmm. Really? It's really? okay. I'm just, All right. I'm here to help. Um, my, my, uh, gardening, uh, heritage upbringing <laughs> would never let me pronounce it, Anise, um, juniper, and then all of the varieties of, of pepper, black pepper, white pepper, green pepper, and pink pepper. Um, so all of these, these are all, uh, pink actually is a different, a different species of plant, but black, white, and green are all the same plant there. It's, um, the, Latin name is uh, Piper nigrum. So that particular plant, all of those are different colors of the same seed. Um, And then ones, um, spices that are specifically just the seed of the plant. Again, these are early reintroductions because the main reason to avoid these is the high frequency of intolerance. Um, And if you're not intolerant, um, then these are great foods to include because they do have some really exciting phytonutrients. So um, again, in the absence of food sensitivity testing that would give you a yes or no in advance, the best practice is to eliminate and then methodically reintroduce. Uh, so seed-based spices that, again, are early introductions um, are anato, um, caraway, um, also called cumin, um, celery seed, coriander, dill, fennel, fenugreek, mustard seed, nutmeg, poppy seeds, and sesame seeds. Um, I mean, I realize sesame seeds are not always thought of as a spice, but but certainly um, they can be. And when we're also talking about like sesame seed, that would include something like sesame seed oil. Um, it's far less likely to react to the oil compared to um, compared to the whole seed. Um, but it it if you are sensitive to sesame seed because of that oil sesame seed oil specifically is um not a purified oil so a purified oil is not going to have uh protein most protein is is water soluble and not fat soluble but the way that these are ground and that flavor is actually potentially um including some protein that could trigger uh, a reaction i think i think that's important for jeff's question was specifically about that and i think um you know, if you are cooking for someone who is strictly AIP, it would not include that. But then, you know, looking at these, I think I did well with everything right away except pepper. But I just want to remind people that you don't want to like make something that has three of these because if you react, you won't know, you know, what which it one ha- it is. Yeah. So I know yeah. you said strategic reintroductions. I just kind of want to point out sometimes, you know, you are offered a food someone else made and maybe it complies with everything except it's going to have some of a few of these in it like if you make the choice to eat that and then react you're going to have a hard time walking back okay well which was it the fennel seed was it the anise was it the cumin like if it had all those in it right like and then you kind of got to figure it out so just be aware that ideally reintroductions are done in an environment where you're at home and you're 
feeling your best, all, all the controls are managed, right? <laughs> yep. So that you, you know, add one thing a couple of times over the course of a couple of days to see how you feel um, before you move on to the next thing. The same thing that you would do with baby food, right? Like you're, mm-hmm. you're checking to see if your baby's having a reaction as you introduce new food. So it would be the same. Actually, that's a fantastic analogy. And I actually, I would say like the only thing in this entire list that I haven't I don't do super well with pepper. I can do a little bit of pepper here and there, so I don't tend to worry about it when I'm traveling, but I don't cook with pepper at why, all. Anymore. Why are why are we re- reacting a little more to pepper than the other ones? Is there a mechanism? So for that? I I know for sure that it came up on a on a food intolerance panel for me, so I just know that I have an intolerance to pepper and if I prime my system too frequently, I drive that reaction. Um so it's it's something that think- is gone down over the time. I also think that I have a less of a reaction to white pepper, but you're saying that they're the same plant. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. maybe it's imaginary. I don't know. Uh, I do not know why you would react more or less to one or the other. It's definitely, you know, my brain. It's my, it's a brain problem. Maybe it has (laughs) to do with the phase of the moon, Stacey. It definitely. Stop. No, that's not fair. All right, let's move into the things that we don't like. That okay. I mean, me so, more so than you. You've been able to reintroduce some of these things, I and I'm not I mad have. about it at all. Uh, it, I mean, it's taken a long, long time. Um, so nightshades are um, the right the the rationale behind eliminating nightshades is much more rigorous than the rationale behind eliminating nuts and seeds because they include um, both agglutinins, um, which is a toxic inflammatory lectin, as well as glycoalkaloids. So they can drive inflammation in multiple different ways. Um, Now, something like tomatoes also has some really exciting nutrients, right? Super high source of lycopene, for example. Um, And this is one of the reasons why the science is kind of mixed, depending on what you look at. Um, But nightshades, I would say, at least anecdotally, are one of the foods that are the hardest to successfully reintroduce on the AIP. Um, It is one of the most common trigger foods outside of like gluten, soy, and dairy. Um, so there are lots of nightshade based spices. And I can tell you, I thought I was doing the AIP for about four months until I discovered that paprika was a nightshade based spice, which was a very frustrating, uh, discovery for me because paprika was one of my go-to, like everything starts with a base oh, of salt and paprika, gosh, it's in everything. Right? I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other ones on this list, um, uh, for this family, like the vegetable family includes tomatoes, potatoes, not sweet potatoes, but just white potatoes or the, you know, purple and whatever, but not sweet potatoes. Um, it includes eggplant and it includes peppers of all varieties. Did I miss anything? There's some other like more unusual vegetables that are in this family as well. Um, like tomatillos and stuff like that. Uh, so under the spices category, this includes capsicums, cayenne, chili pepper, uh, or chili powder, Um, It includes paprika and red pepper, and then there's certain spice blends that often include some kind of nightshade. So like curry powders very, very commonly include some kind of red pepper. Also, you know, coriander and cumin and fenugreek, also seed-based spices. Um, And you'll find actually nightshade-based spices and other spice blends. So um, for example, like all-purpose seasoning almost always includes nightshade-based spices. Steak seasoning almost always includes it. 
Um, and you'll actually, in other spice blends, you'll find seeds as well. So like Chinese five spice has uh, anise, peppercorns, and fennel seed. Garam masala has peppercorns, cumin, and cardamom. Um, poultry often has pepper and nutmeg. So uh, spice blends um, are something where you definitely want to read the label. And if the label says spices or natural flavors, I'm using air quotes here, um, then that's generally something to avoid. It's actually surprising how often paprika is included and not specifically listed, but falls under spices. Oh I have called gosh, companies so before often. to find out and they've been like, oh yeah, that's just paprika. I'm like, <clears throat> just I'm like I'm like staring at the things with a magnifying glass to identify the little red flecks you know like okay you say it's not in there but I'm seeing little red flecks so I'm gonna pass I yeah. have totally done that I've totally <laughs> done that I've been like oh the sausage looks good oh it says spices what's in oh I see red flecks nope yep exactly no. so Jeff's question was really specifically about brines and broths and oils and um, it really boils down to like, why are we eliminating this food? And is the thing that we're eliminating water soluble or fat soluble? So proteins generally are water soluble. So if you are putting um, a seed-based spice into a broth or a brine, you are going to get, like, if you're putting like whole peppercorns into a broth to get the flavor or into a brine, yes, you are going to get that in the finished product. Um, and this is why, you know, broths with black pepper listed on the label are not considered AIP. That doesn't mean that they're going to be a trigger for everybody because, um, again, these are like early reintroductions, but best practice on the elimination um, phase of the AIP would be to not, <laughs> not cook with even like a whole peppercorn that you're then going to remove from the finished product. Um, but for these particular um, uh, sort of seed, berry, and fruit-based spices, um, you could do um, a, a flavored oil, not where the spice is crushed, like in sesame oil, but where you like put some peppercorns into olive oil. Um, a lot of the really like the flavorful phytonutrients are oil soluble but the protein isn't so in that case um as long as the the seed is intact and you're sort of like infusing it just by letting it sit for a couple weeks that for most people is going to to work okay so there's like this little this little loophole in the um oil infusion my little um, science but, brain is blown right now i'm like look at the little chemistry and the science i would have never guessed that you would say that that's okay um but it's not okay if it's a nightshade. So glycoalkaloids have a detergent structure. So a detergent is something that makes oil and water mix. So it is both water soluble and oil soluble. Um, and so putting, um, you know, hot peppers or something into an olive oil and letting that sit, you are definitely going to get the glycoalkaloids in that oil. So that is, that is the exception to the exception <laughs> is, um, nightshades, basically you can't use it in any of these different ways because the problematic compounds are going to get into a broth or a brine as well as an oil. Yeah, I could have told you chili oil is a no go. No go. No, no go. Hard pass. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
for sure. Um, yeah, I can. I've I've started playing around with some nightshade-based spices. I seem to be okay if I keep the frequency pretty low. That's after over nine years of AIP journey, um, and it's really only been something I've played with in the last maybe two years. Um, and uh, and I'm still very cautious with it. Like I I still don't. I still don't have a super, like once a week seems to be okay for me. Um, but more often than that, definitely, definitely not. Um, so again, I think night, nightshade's just, I have not talked with very many people who have used the AIP as part of their, their healing protocol and uh, have successfully reintroduced all nightshades. Like that just, that doesn't seem to be a very common experience. I have met a lot of people who are in denial that nightshades are a problem for them. Like they, they continue to have symptoms and they claim that they removed them and saw no difference. So they add them back and I'm like, yeah, no, you didn't like fully. I mean, them. it's not that many <laughs> hundreds of years since nightshades were thought to be poison and that people were thought to be witches if they cooked with tomatoes because they were clearly trying to poison everybody. Like I mean, it's, it's called, not that it's long. called the deadly nightshade family. Like it's, you know, okay. Well, there is a version called yes. deadly nightshade. Yes, exactly. Guess, guess, did you know what? It's actually, it's actually like really deadly. Oh, jeez. Well, <laughs> I will say this is so just to kind of give perspective, maybe two years ago, I was where you are. I was able to have like some curries and I could have paprika a couple times a week and it wouldn't bother me. And then when I got the coronavirus, I like don't even want to say it. I'm like, meh. Um, and I have had this long hauler symptom. I mean, I'm trying to support my body as best I can to heal from whatever is going on because we're making all these connections as to what we realize it's affecting without being able to yet identify in science how to solve it. Um, And so the best that I can do is, you know, I'm taking extra supplements. I'm trying to, you know, reduce my stress and add more sleep while also in a global pandemic. Um, And, you know, having four children here for virtual school all the time. It's great. And um, so one of the things that I was like, okay, let me do this for myself is really being strict about no nightshades because I do know that my body is sensitive to it and I know that I can process it when my body is in an ideal state which I clearly am not right and so I say that because you might find that over time you're able to add these things back in and then maybe symptoms come back because you know you have a car accident and you don't realize how stressful that is mentally or whatever and it might be that for a few weeks or however long it is that you can help your body kind of any sort of stress that comes onto your body with an autoimmune condition is going to kind of reactivate that in a different sort of way. And there are all kinds of things you can do. And Sarah and I talk all the time, like just removing these things is not going to be enough. You need to, you know, be getting better sleep, sunshine, Mm -hmm. exercise, all those things are still hugely important for your overall well-being to reduce the stress and to help your body heal. It's just going to have a lot easier of a time doing that if you're not adding something to your diet that is activating and creating inflammation in your system. Because if you're doing that, you're kind of like undoing all the other work. So one can't work in a vacuum outside the other. They really, this is an overall approach to helping yourself feel better. And I say that because, you know, this whole, um, 
what do they call the like no diet diet, right? Like this, this idea of um, just eating what you want to eat should be the idea should, right? Quotation marks should be how you feel best. The problem is, is that we know that that's not the case. We have clear science to indicate like Sarah will provide all the references and resources. <laughs> yep. and, like, I mean, I don't, you had like a whole book worth of references in your first book to show how these things really affect. And I think it's important that we are loving ourselves enough to want to respect ourselves enough to know what helps us feel good and what irritates us because that's really what self-love is in my opinion is you know you might know that one of these things affects you and maybe you make a decision to like have your mother's curry because that's what you need emotionally in that moment just know that it could cause a flare and know what you need to do in order to support yourself to get out of that flare and to be feeling your best because Sarah and I have both had, I remember years ago on the podcast, you told a story about making tomato something. I don't know. It was like a stew or something. It was a, it was a, um, it was an Indian dish. It was, um, it was a, it was a curried chicken that had like a couple tablespoons of tomato paste in the entire batch that was enough to feed us for two nights. And, uh, that was when, uh, that was actually a couple of maybe like four months before my, uh, ill-fated uh conference experience and it was my first indication that nightshades were really not cool for me yeah and I myself have gotten to a point where it's been a year and I haven't had any sort of you know autoimmune flares and been like you know what I really want curry I'm gonna order curry and then being like that was not the best life choice like I you know like okay I'm learning from this I, I tried to reintroduce clearly it didn't work and I have no way of knowing like what caused that problem? Could it be that a couple of those ingredients were fine and a couple of them weren't? I don't know because I added too many, right? I'm not saying that we're mm-hmm. perfect and that we don't, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I'm not saying I'm perfect and I don't do those things. <laughs> I'm just saying like, these are the lessons that I've learned from it that I am sharing with you and you, you can choose to learn from it or make those mistakes yourself. It's just, I would prefer you not to touch the hot oven if you don't have to, that's all. Uh, that is an amazing analogy to wrap up on. Uh, so I will thank our listeners for tuning in this week and we'll be back next week. And if you want to hear what we really think and what really, we have really. really done with all of this in our personal lives, hop over to our Patreon. Um, if you don't know how to get there, you can just Google the whole view in Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Um, every week after the show, we record a what we really think uh, behind the scenes for those who want to learn more, want to connect with us, um, because there is a unique community. You can access us directly that way um, and also um, a way to support us. So we thank you if you are a member of that community. And if not, we thank you for listening and we'll be back again next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.